This is episode five. This week's guest is Michael Clinton, former president and publishing director of Hearst Magazines and is currently special media advisor to the Hearst Corporation's CEO. Michael is the author of the best-selling book, Roar, Into the Second Half of Your Life, in parentheses, Before It's Too Late, which has just been added to his long, long list of major accomplishments. Roar is creating change in the minds and hearts of people entering the next phase of their lives and careers. We'll discuss how Michael came to New York with $60 in his pocket, a couch to crash on, and nothing more than ambition, drive, and perseverance. Even if you are starting from the bottom, Michael shares how you can reach your life goals as well. From there, we'll dive into Michael's concept of life layering, born from his humorous but awakening realization. I came to the conclusion that I was the most boring human being on the planet. All this and more as we explore what it means to roar. You're listening to Extraordinary Work, conversations about creating change. I'm Terry Yaffe, founder of Try Coaching. Throughout my career, I've worked in many industries from fashion to advertising to sales. I'm a certified executive, career and business coach, and a TV and podcast host. This podcast will connect you with people who work passionately, striving to make a difference in their corner of the world. I hope these authentic and inspiring conversations will help you channel your ability to create change. My guest is Michael Clinton, former president and publishing director of Hearst Magazines and is currently special media advisor to the Hearst Corporation CEO. Michael is also the contributing editor to Esquire and Men's Health. And might I add, he is a proficient photographer, avid traveler, visit about 124 countries, has run marathons on seven continents, holds a pilot's license, and recently earned another master's degree. And now, He adds author to his long list of accomplishments with his best-selling book, Roar, into the second half of your life, in parentheses, before it's too late, which is creating change in the minds and hearts of those people that are thinking about, too frightened to do anything about, or don't know what life could be about as they enter the next phase of their lives and careers. So Michael is definitely a Renaissance man. And without further ado, let's roar into our conversation. Thanks, Terry. It's great to be with you. It's always great to see you. We've known each other for many years and we haven't connected in a while, but it's an honor to be with you on your program today and talk all about roar and what it might mean for people who are in midlife. That is correct. And it's it feels like it's such an extraordinary work and so much change for people who are looking towards where are they going next. So the question I would like to ask is, tell us a bit about how you got to where you are. 
Well, you know, one of the things that I like to say, I came from a very sort of modest background, working class family in Pennsylvania, you know, no money, first one to go to college in the family. And I had this dream. I was the publisher of my university newspaper. And I said, oh, there might be something in this publishing thing. <laughs> so um, I moved to New York with $60 in my pocket and a couch to sleep on for a couple of months, no contacts and sort of, you know, started from the bottom up. And, you know, I think that the lesson that I like to tell any young person who I talk to is, you know, with some ingenuity and some drive and ambition and some luck and some timing, you too can find an exciting path in your in your life. And by the way, you can also do that at 40 and 50 and 60. And so, you know, I was fortunate, I think when you and I first met Terry, I may have been the publisher of GQ and I was uh, a publisher when I was 34 years old. So I was a young publisher in the industry. And then worked my way up through the ranks to be uh, president and publishing director of Hearst. As you referenced, I got to launch Oprah's Magazine with our team, which was great. I got to uh, launch Food Network and HGTV magazines and acquire magazines like Elle and Car and Driver and others. And so it's been it was a, ex- a very, very exciting, dynamic 40 year career. But like many, I was sort of ready to step out after my what I call my first career and, you know, start, you know, moving into the future. You know, it was a, I was one of the lucky guys and that I had a you know really great, terrific career to experience. That's great. And here you are with such a, a successful and long career in publishing and having huge responsibilities and the pressure of being an executive. How have you managed to fit in the other part of your life, such as the marathon, the photography, the travel? You call that in chapter eight of your book, life layering. Yeah. Yes. You know, ROAR, which is an acronym, which we will get to, each of the letters represents something. And the A is the action plan. And life layering is um, sort of a life philosophy that I created when I was 39 years old. So I was 39. I had a great job. I was the publisher of GQ. I had a, you know, a happy family life, but I came to the conclusion that I was the most boring human being on the planet because all I was doing was working. And I said to myself in the proverbial way, you better get a life. And so I decided around that time to, I always had sort of an adventure streak in me and everybody knows what their sort of passion is. So when I was turning 40, I went to Africa and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with a group of friends. And then I took a flying lesson. And as you said, you know, I became a pilot. But those two experiences sort of sparked me to say, I want my 40s to be my adventure years. So I created this layer, I call it, where in my 40s, I ran around the world. I climbed mountains. I visited places like, you know, Madagascar and Bhutan and, you know, really off the beaten path kinds of places And I developed this layer called my adventure layer, which I continue to build on, you know, 25 plus years later. And then in my early 50s, I decided to tap into my my interest in photography. And I started really focusing on photography. Ultimately, I had eight books of my photography published. I had exhibitions. I joined the board of the International Center of Photography. I jumped in headfirst into the photography world. So that sort of became a second layer, and I'm still very involved in the photography world. When people hear about all these things that I've done, you know, I like to say to them, well, it just didn't happen in a year. (laughs) This happened over the course of 
25 plus years, the message in the book is you can start a layer at any time in your life. You can start one at 25, 35, 65, 75. I was just talking to a 75-year-old who was starting a new layer as a watercolorist. And I said, that's great. You can be a watercolorist for the rest of your life, you know, and hopefully it'll be a long life. Building these layers into your life, you don't give up one for the other. I call it a big, delicious layer cake where you're building all these great layers. And so what happens is you end up building this very rich and fulfilling life that is multidimensional, multifaceted, so that you have a lot of different ways that you identify yourself. And you rattled off a few of mine that I, how I identify myself. So layering is a really great approach to building a, a full life. That's great. And I so can identify with that on so many layers and levels for myself, you know, coming out of publishing and then going into coaching and now doing podcasting. It's great. And it's, I think, so important today where, as you mentioned, people get caught up in their work and they don't have anything else. Sometimes when that falls apart, they don't know who they are because there's nothing else. It's a great point. I call it the seat syndrome. And the seat syndrome is when you do have your self-identity tied up into the seat in which you sit in for work. Mm -hmm. And most of us work for companies or organizations or institutions. So we are, as I like to say, no matter how high up the ranks you get, you're still hired help. And, you know, when you have a great seat, you know, as I did, and as many people do, the risk is if you tie up your identity into that seat, you do get lost. So life layering allows you to build different identities. So when I stepped out of my very exciting seat, at Hearst, I was able to say, you know, I'm a photographer, I'm a runner, I'm a, I'm a adventure traveler, I'm an author, I'm a student because I went back to school, I'm a this and a that. So I had a lot of other personas that I had cultivated. So I think it's really important, especially for people who are about to wind up a first career and are thinking about what's next for them. You know, if you're 50 and healthy or 60 and healthy, you're going to live another 30 years. You can't go and just play the proverbial golf game for 30 years. You know, it's very, you know, that is not sustainable. So how do you build a second career? How do you build a a different lifestyle, a different relationship? I think what's, what's happened is people bought into an old script that when you were 60 and you retired or 65, you were supposed to just sail off into the sunset. And the message of Roar is that you can wind up and have a whole next chapter in any aspect of your life. Let's jump in to Roar. So what was the defining moment that shifted your mindset to realize the impact you could make by writing a book? Not just any book, but a book that talks to those people who are looking for their next act, which is obviously all about creating change for somebody. It's a great question. Everything that I read was about winding down. And I realized that I wanted to wind up. And many of my peers and people I knew were also, you know, 60 is the new 60. And, you know, it is, (laughs) I hate that 60 is the new 40 thing. 60 is the new 60. If you talk to the average 60 year old, they're like raring to go, you know, (laughs) these days. 
And so as I did my homework, I couldn't find any voices or messages that were really proactive. So I said, I, maybe there's something here for me to explore. I ended up interviewing 40 amazing individuals. I call them the reimagineers. These are people who've done extraordinary things in midlife. And they're not only an inspiration for their generation, but for Gen X and the millennials, what I'm hoping is that they will see this book and say, wow, that's the kind of 70-year-old I want to be someday, because they're all going to live longer and they're going to have very long lives. And so they're going to have a very different experience than their parents or grandparents, perhaps. I also wanted to put in a lot of tools and resources in the book that were practical. So it's a combination of inspirational and practical. And I wanted it to be concise. I didn't want it to be homework. I wanted it to be readable and entertaining. And um, so ROAR is the acronym. The R stands for reimagining yourself and how do you do it? I asked the question, what is your favorite future? Which is a, a very interesting question to pose to people. Reimagining is a process that we have to integrate into our lives because we're constantly doing it as we go through life's journey. And a lot of the people who I interviewed give their tips and tools in terms of how you do it. The O is own, own it, own your stuff, your health, own your financial you know, stats, own your age, own your goals. You can't move forward until you do a complete personal assessment, especially in, in midlife. If you're in your 50s, am I healthy? Do I have a financial foundation? Have I realized that if I'm 50 and healthy, I'm going to live another 40 years? And what does that really mean? So I say go to 90 and work backwards. What do you want the second half of your life to be? A is the action plan. Aside from life layering, the other thing, the people who are, come from the business world will know what a SWOT analysis is. And I say, do your personal SWOT, your strength, your weakness, your opportunities, and your threats. One of the things I learned from my 40 interviewees is that they all started a year or more in advance before they really made a change. They really went through a really rigorous personal assessment. They did the work in terms of what they wanted to do next. And the final R is reassess your relationships because in order to move forward, you have to have your posse, your tribe, your people who are going to help you get there. And that's going to be your spouse, your kids, your partner, your friends. Because if someone says at 55 or 60, well, I want to go back to school and learn something completely different and have a second career. You may have some naysayers in your life that will say, well, why do you want to do that? Like, why do you want to put that energy forward? Like, why do you want, like, what, what's, like, what's the point? And I would argue that those people are the ones that you may have to edit out because you need the people who are really going to support what your dreams and your visions are. And by the way, that's a good tool for whether you're 60 or 25, because we all know that person who wanted to be an anthropologist, but they were talking to be an accountant by their parents because it was a more practical choice. And so, you know, that's a good thing to do at any age. But the R is reassess your relationships. Let's talk about looking a year ahead of time. What could somebody do for 12 months, you know, in getting ready? So I'm just going to jump in here. I wasn't in the book. <laughs> we didn't really, but I am the book. Really, I went from being at Condi to starting my own rep company. And then when the landscape dried up, 
I didn't know what to do. I mean, I looked at everything and I thought I'd go back to school and become a therapist. It led me to coaching. I knew nothing about coaching, nothing. Here I was reimagining myself. So can you tell us, you know, if somebody would have changed paths, given a year in advance, what, what could they do? Yeah, it's a great question. I think first you have to identify where you want the change. So is the change a work change or relationship change, a lifestyle change? You have to identify what is the change because there's always in in the dynamic life, there's always something that you're thinking about. I'll give you two ideas that really emerge. The, The first one is I like to say, go back to your younger self and pick up a thread that you left on the shelf because we all have that. We all had things that were our dreams and our aspirations that we got sidetracked because school and work and spouse and kids and, you know, all of a sudden we're like, wait a minute, what happened to that dream to become a writer? So there was a woman I interviewed in the book. She was a sales executive for 25 years, but her early passion was to always be a writer. She wanted to be a mystery writer. So for her year of discovery, she decided that she was going to begin to build a discipline to sit down and start writing. She took writing courses. She did master class with Dan Brown. She joined the Mystery Writers Guild of America and went to their conference. She wrote a novel. As she then tells in the book, she had 170 rejections. She was like, well, I'll put that novel on the shelf. But then she's decided to write a second novel which she ultimately sold. She is now 66 years old. She started this when she was in her mid to late 50s. She's now 66 years old. She's written six mystery novels, and she identifies as a mystery novelist. She had the support from her husband and kids. She quit her job and really focused on writing. I mean, she did that year of discovery and then flipped. So going back to your younger self, Something that you had a passion for that you left on the shelf is a good way to to explore. Mm. The second way to explore it, and it's a great, a great tool. And we do this. uh, We talk about this in the book. Go to 10 of your friends and ask them to give you five words that define you. So I would say, Terry, give me five words that you think describe me in terms of since you know me and your friends and your family know you the best. And then chart out those words. And find out where is the common base, number one. And number two, do those words reflect your own self-perception? We all know that person who says, oh, I'm very empathetic. And we say, you're the least empathetic person I know. (laughs) So you got to see what your external world is telling you. So another example in the book was a woman. She didn't go through this process, but all of her friends and family said, you are the funniest person we've ever known. And one of her friends said, you should go do an open mic session at a stand-up comedy club. And she said, I don't even know what that means. And her daughter took her to Atlanta. She lives in Georgia, outside of Atlanta. And she did a stand-up, she did a mic session, you know, impromptu. And she like came to life on stage. And all of a sudden she was like, I guess I really am funny. Make a long story short, she's now a stand-up comic at 59 years old and works the circuit in the comedy clubs, uh, COVID aside. But she took that word funny and she did something with that word funny. So if all of your family and friends say to you, here's like my word that I got nine out of 12 people responded to was generosity. And that's a self 
identifier for me. So generosity of time, money, spirit, mentoring, you know, all of the things that go. So take a word and really go deep into that word. And how do you build off of that word Mm. in terms of creating what might be your next? First of all, it's a fun process. It can also be a scary process, but also it really gives you input as to how the world perceives you, you know, your close in world. These are all such great points. With all of your passions, projects, and constant layering, can you identify one or two of these experiences that you could honestly say, this feeds my soul and gives me purpose and fulfillment above all the others? Would that even be possible? For me, I would go back to generosity, which has always been a theme in my life. 12 years ago, some friends and I started a foundation called Circle of Generosity, and we are seven people on a board. We have no paid. Everything is volunteers. But what we do is we grant, uh, we give a grant to a family or an individual who is in a really tough moment in their life. So Mm -hmm. if they're about to be evicted, we may pay six months of rent. We had a very big initiative around food insecurity during the pandemic. We funded many, many, many food pantries and food kitchens and families that were struggling. And, you know, it's a very gratifying experience. We gave a grant to two families who lost everything in the fires in Boulder, Colorado. And so to be able to do that, and we do it anonymously, by the way, our individual names are not attached to it. It is a great, Mm. fulfilling experience. We're 12 years old. We're on our way to giving away our first million, which is um, exciting. We do a fundraiser every year where you can go online and look at Circle of Generosity and see what we're all about. But that to me was discovering something in mining that word generosity mm. that I formalized in a nonprofit foundation. And so that's a, that's a, to me would be a great example. I love the quote in the flap of your book, change is all around us in our careers and our relationships and throughout the world. And it really seems that you have taken that and created change in the minds and the hearts of people with this book and offering a bevy of information for how people could start to think about creating change, which is very scary for everybody. I just really wanna thank you so much for this thought-provoking, informative conversation. And I would like to share some of your poignant isms as takeaways for those of us that want to roar in to the second, third, or even fourth careers, which you said, what's your favorite future quote? I love that. You are either living large or getting older. And my favorite, you are either winding down or winding up. The choice is yours. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yes. Thank you, Terry. I think what I would add is, you know, we do live in a culture of ageism. Ageism affects everyone, regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, religious belief. And you have to be in the cohort before you begin to see it and experience it. As a result of that, many people take in self-imposed ageism. They say, you know, I'm too old. I can't do that. I, you know, it's not appropriate. It's not this. It's not that. We need the reimagineers among us to show us the way because you can go back to school in your 60s, as I did, 
you can run a marathon at 80, as Fauja Singe did, his first one, and I write about him in the book. You can have a new romantic relationship at 100, as we reference as this great couple in the book. Anything is possible. So don't get hung up on age appropriate. Focus on person appropriate. Don't get hung up on self-imposed ageism. Don't think about midlife crisis. Think about your midlife awakening, because at 50, you have learned a lot about yourself. You know what you want, but more importantly, you know what you don't want. And so strip yourself of that self-imposed ageism, and it will open up many, many possibilities to you that will be an exciting new chapter. And finally, I would add longevity is becoming more and more a part of our lives, whether it is in the U.S. or globally. Stanford University just put out a new study called The New Map of Life. The 100-year life is here. Mm. That five-year-old today who's healthy and had good prenatal and young nutrition, 50% of them have the chance to live to be 100. So if you think about this incredible new lifespan and life cycles, we're going to be having Everything that we've known in a 50 plus world is going to be blown to smithereens because we're going to have be working longer and living longer and loving longer and doing all of those things. And so, you know, I think it really gives a different perspective as to how we build our lives and structure our lives. So banish ageism and think about possibilities about what is your favorite future. That is great. On that note, Michael, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you for joining the conversation. For related content on extraordinary work, visit my website, trycoaching.com. I'll be back in two weeks with another conversation. Be sure to follow this podcast so you don't miss an episode. If this resonates with you, I welcome your rating and review. Always remember, when you work with passion and purpose, your work can become extraordinary.